You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. The majority of single-family rentals, and there's about 23 million of them, are owned by small investors, mom and pops. Institutional investors who get a lot of flack only own about 350,000 rentals, or about 1.5% of the market share but they are poised to increase that percentage. They're probably looking at the same metrics that we're looking at, which is massive rental demand in a high interest rate environment that's keeping more people renting than becoming homeowners. And that's exactly why we started our second single-family rental fund focused on the Texas market where there's a lot of job growth and high demand for rentals. You can get more details on that at growdevelopments.com. There's still time to invest by the end of the year. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today is the Managing Director of Armada ETF Advisors, David Auerbach, who knows how the institutional investors think and operate, because he is one. David has more than 23 years of experience in the REIT industry. He's the publisher of the daily REIT Beat newsletters and has worked as an institutional trader at World Equity Group, Esposito Securities, and Green Street Advisors. And he's here with us today on The Real Wealth Show. David, welcome. Kathy, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I should be the one interviewing you, not the other way around. <laughs> I don't know about that. You have quite an extensive experience. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing today with your REIT. Sure, yeah. We're running uh, one of the few active REIT ETF sets on the market. We are focused on 25 pure play residential REITs uh, that comprise the ETF that's multifamily, single family rentals, manufactured housing, and senior housing. Okay, and how has this new market affected your holdings? You know, it's, it's an interesting tale of the tape since we launched in the beginning of March. When we launched what is now known as the Residential Read Income ETF, things started very well. This was before the Fed started raising interest rates. Inflation started picking up. Recession was on the horizon. And then once the Russia-Ukraine crisis picked up, interest rates started hiking. Inflation goes up. Recession creeps in. Consumers get a little bit more cautious with the uh, Wall Street dollars since, you know, it's very difficult. It doesn't matter what the company was, whether it was Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, the best companies that were on the market uh, were uh, underperforming. And now is the time, really, what we're taking this active approach, looking at when you're able to really create generational wealth, something I know that you focus on in some of your conversations, when you can really build generational wealth through publicly traded real estate investment trusts. Uh, and so now, right now, we're trading you know, uh, ch cheaper than when we came to market at the beginning of March. But at the end of the day, we're looking at the underlying fundamentals of a lot of these publicly traded residential companies. And the current economic environment actually bodes well for them since rental income has been going up, which means dividends have been going up, which is income in your pocket. What a time to start in March of 2022. Oh my goodness, there's been such major shifts. So is your company still in acquisition mode? Well, we focus on the publicly traded companies. So our ETF owns 25 uh, Wall Street companies that are in the S&P 500, the mid-cap four, small-cap 600 indexes. To answer your question, yes, a lot of these apartment REITs still are going out and acquiring properties. They're also culling their balance sheets. I mean, they're trimming some of the bottom underperform, what's it called, underperforming properties to focus on more desirable markets or more desirable properties. 
And for our listeners who are new to what an ETF is, will you, will you explain that? They're just used to buying real estate, renting it out, cash flowing on it. Yeah, this is actually it's a great question. And you know, I was doing my research, watching some of your videos as well. And I know that you try to skew away from publicly traded securities. And, and this is a very unique vehicle because, again, we're focused on publicly traded companies. These are, like I said, S&P 500 companies that have been around for 25, 30 years that have long-term track records focusing on some of the best markets in the country. These management teams have been in place a long time where they know how to go on offense, know when to go on defense. They've dealt with every economic cycle that's possible, 9-11, COVID. And so, you know, to answer your question, really, it's, it's a big picture here that really, in the long term, REITs tend to outperform. And so we're focused on some of these, like I said, publicly traded companies that are focused on where people have been moving to, like right now, the, uh, the Sun Belt. I know you focus on the Sun Belt a lot. And so for us, an exchange-traded fund is what I basically call a publicly traded mutual fund. If you buy a mutual fund, the fund sponsor tells you at the end of the day what your fund is worth. With us, you can buy our ETF for right now around $15 a share during market hours. We have a bid price, or it's the minimum price that you would pay for it or that you'd buy it, and an ask price where, you, where the seller would sell the ETF. And so you can see how transparent we are. We have a two-sided quote. We could trade 500 shares, 5,000 shares, 5 million shares. That's the beautiful uh, creation, excuse me, the beautiful structure of ETFs, exchange-traded funds. New shares can be created of the exchange-traded fund, while it's the same thing like a mutual fund, which, which is always creating new shares of the fund. And I'm happy to go further and more in detail of it, but an ETF is a more tax-efficient wrapper as opposed to you going out and buying these 25 publicly traded companies, you can put all 25 companies into one stock and play it through one particular company as in our fund. For more diversification, is that why you would do that? Yes, correct. I mean, again, you could play the S&P 500 and buy an ETF that has 500 stocks in one particular stock. You can do market cap weighted. You could do reverse weighted where the number 500 company is actually the top weighted company. There's over 3,000 ETFs, exchange traded funds that are on the market from every single sector that you can possibly imagine. My particular team and I, we've done real estate our entire career. We've grown up in the REIT industry. And so we know these companies backward, forward, inside and out. We're able to take a very active approach looking at, there are people moving across the country, and I know we'll talk about the craziness of the housing market, but because of what is happening in the housing markets, which of these residential REIT segments and companies benefit from this migration across the country? So what what is your outlook on the coming year? Do you, do you have a, I should say, how is your company planning for 2023 when so many are saying that we could be headed for a pretty major recession? Some say a soft landing. Um, what what is what are you anticipating? You know, it's it's interesting because we're coming off a very high year from apartments and single family rentals. If you were an apartment investor, a single family rental investor, you did very well this year, both in home price appreciation as well as tenant demand. Some of our publicly traded constituents like American Homes for Rent, their ticker is AMH, Tricon Residential, their ticker is TCN, or the most well-known ones, Invitation Homes, INVH, 
They talk about the amount of demand and phone calls that they're getting for their properties. Looking ahead into 23, what we do know is that the rental appreciation may not be as severe as what we saw this year. Instead of having double-digit rent increases, these guys may only report, let's say, a 5 to an 8% rent increase next year. We do know that interest rates are going to keep going up. We know that mortgage rates will continue to keep going up, which means it's going to be harder to afford that mortgage on the house going forward, and thus that consumer will continue to be renting for that much longer. Until we see a massive reset, frankly, in interest rates and in home prices, the rental market, whether it's through the apartments, the single-family rentals, or the manufactured housing segment, that will continue to see strong tailwinds going into 23 and possibly into 24. Okay, so you're still bullish on the rental market. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I hear lots of different comments in the comments section of our, our podcast of people concerned that rents are going to decline. Do you, do you believe that's possible? No, I think it really all depends on, we're down to the number one rule of real estate. You know what the number one rule of real estate is, location, location, location. I think it, location does play a big part of that. If you look at you know the Redfin top 50s, the Zillow top 50s, the U-Haul move index, whichever your favorite barometer is, if there's so many people moving into, let's say, Nashville or Charlotte, and yet there isn't enough housing inventory to support that amount of people moving there, or enough to call it high-quality uh, multifamily or single-family rental properties for those people to rent, well, they're going to have to figure something out. I've lived this every single day in this fun with one mantra. There's one thing that every single investor, especially listening to your uh, podcast here, has in common, is that we're all fortunate enough to go to sleep with a roof over our head. It doesn't matter if we rent an apartment, we make that apartment our own. It's our home. Uh, that roof over your head is the most important investment decision that you make for yourself and your family, your kids, your grandkids, your pets, every single day of your life. And you're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that roof is over your head. But looking down the road for the next five to 10 years, we do know that, number one, there's still millions of homes in lacking of supply to satisfy the amount of demand that's out there. And number two, we don't have enough apartments that's out there from the amount of consumers that are coming into the market over the next five to 10 years, that next generation of rental consumers. So we know that there's going to be a massive well of apartment development and both single-family rental and regular home development going forward. And the question is, which side of it do you want to be on? Do you want to be in a place that's already established, like, let's say, Austin, Nashville, Charlotte, or looking down the road five, ten years from now, focusing on really where that puck is going, where that ball is going? Is it going to be Wichita, Kansas, Omaha, Nebraska, Oklahoma City? Is it going to be Provo, Utah? Well, it's really trying to figure out where is that next layer of demand going to come from. Sure. So what, what metro areas are you focused on that where you think there'll be more demand than supply? You know, it's, it really is, I think, focusing on those markets, as I've mentioned. Like, I do see big things ahead for the Omahas of the world, Wichita. Really some of these, I don't want to say unloved, underappreciated, but some of these hidden gems in our country. You know, I'll give you an example. Wisconsin, you know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There is a, you know, Wall Street presence there. There is corporate presence there. 
but the cost of living in Milwaukee is so much cheaper than a lot of the other parts of the globe. Same thing in Minneapolis, St. Paul. You know, granted, you have a very rough winter sometimes, but, you know, for many other months, it's a beautiful place to be. Lexington, Kentucky, again, just figuring out, it may not be the capital, it may just be like, you know, again, the call it the secondary, the tertiary city in that, in that state, where people haven't suddenly done that mass migration towards. And that's just my opinion. Again, it's looking really kind of following the trend. And that's why, again, I feel like, again, the Redfins, the Zillows, the U-Hauls, they're really telling you where are people going? Like, who focuses on Fargo, North Dakota? Well, clearly, people are moving to someplace like Fargo. And, you know, again, because of COVID, you know, we had this RV generation. People could just rent an RV, go hop in, and go drive wherever they wanted to go. And if they wanted to stay at a manufactured housing property and they liked it, a lot of people painted flags there. And actually, instead of renting that manufactured housing property, they bought it. And these publicly traded companies like Equity Lifestyles or Sun Communities or UMH Properties, again, these are guys that have been around for 30 years that own tens of thousands of manufactured housing properties and communities. You know, they talk about on the earnings call the number of people that have converted from renter status to ownership status. Uh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, you're looking at it from a totally different perspective of what are these companies doing and, and where are they focused? Uh, it seems like American Homes for Rent, they've been more focused on bigger cities, some of the cities that maybe they're pulling back from now. Do you, do you think that they would go into those smaller metro areas like you mentioned? You know, it's interesting. It's all the single-family rental guys have kind of pulled back on the acquisition or uh, on the development side because of rising construction costs, rising interest rates, all those things. But for, there's a couple of different things to focus on when you look at the REITs. First of all, the REITs are benchmarked with the, the 10-year treasury. You guys, you know, your renter, your consumers follow the 30-year treasury rate, right? Well, 30-year treasuries, 30-year mortgage rates are close to 7 8% now, right? Really high rates. The 10-year is trading around 415, 4.15%. If you go back to COVID when things were just great for everybody, the tenure was trading around one and change. And what happened is companies like American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, they're able to borrow billions of dollars at what I call basically free money rates, because again, where the treasury was at 1% and change. As a result, they're so well fortified on their balance sheet that they can afford to go out and develop. They can be selective of when they want to plant the flag in the ground in Wichita, Kansas, to build out that new community. Now, one of the things that I like about American Homes for Rent, unlike any of the other players that are out there, if you use Invitation Homes, for example, and my neighbor across the street here uh, isn't a single-family rental. It's not owned by Invitation Homes, but it's the perfect example. The Invitation Homes will come up to my neighborhood. They'll work and see what's for sale. Oh, we'll buy that house there. We'll buy that house two blocks down the road. We like the one that's at the corner over there. You know, and so they'll buy a pick and choose in the neighborhood. American Homes for Inclusion develops their own communities. They'll go and build, they'll buy a plot of land and put 50 homes inside a community, and it's now a single family rental community. Which, if you think about the terms of scale and economy, that's one builder. One maintenance crew, one property manager, you're able to keep everything internalized. Like they do a really good job approaching it. And so because of where that puck is going and because of how well fortified they are, 
yeah, I could see them start developing in these next cities. Because again, once they say we're developing, you're still looking at at least a couple of years, if not more, from first, you know, closing till last tenant moves in. That's a long process. Yeah, it's an interesting comment about the way they've been capitalized. And are you saying that they were able to borrow that cheap money and they're still sitting on it and able to be an acquisition model? Yes, a lot of these companies are, not just the single-family rental guys, but also the multifamily guys as well, where they did raise, again, billions of dollars. Or they were able to retire debt, let's say, that's to in 2024 at 6%, and now we can push it out to 2027 at 3%. And so they're able to, again, strengthen their balance sheet at much more attractive cost of capital so they can be very selective when they want to go and develop. Now, unless they're going to do specific construction loan, like, oh, we got to go out and get money right now, well, now you're stuck at the broad market of what's going on in the interest rate. And for some of our REITs, that are really, you know, AAA rated by S&P and Moody's, they're feeling the price tag on the interest rate just like the regular consumer. As a case in point, one of the office rates a couple of days ago, very well known, very strong rated, but they got like some green bonds that are like six and three quarters percent, where if you'd gone back a couple of years ago, they would have gotten that same deal at two or three, two percent or three percent. It just shows you how much the market has changed with the move by the Federal Reserve and interest rates. And I'm here to tell you, it's going to keep going up. That isn't going down anytime soon. And unfortunately, the end consumer, your end home buyer, is the one that's feeling that pinch. Just think about it. I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm I'm in a very lucky situation in my home, so this doesn't necessarily apply to me. But let's say it does. I'm in a $300,000 home at a 275 mortgage, and I get this great job opportunity to go move to Wichita, Kansas, let's say. But I'm going to go buy a $300,000 home with a 7% mortgage? Like, I'm screwed. What do I do? So a lot of people are kind of constrained right now because the market, the, the mortgage market, has kind of forced their hand based off of what the Federal Reserve Act are. But the good news is the rental guys, this doesn't necessarily affect them. Because, again, if you're a renter, you don't care where interest rates are necessarily going. Unless you're a renter that's in the market to go out and buy a house right now, you're basically just paying that rental check. And unless the landlord comes to you and says, you know, I got bad news for you. Your rent's going from $1,000 a month to $1,200 a month. Most likely the consumer will be like, okay, I can stomach that. Bad news, your rent's going from $1,000 a month to $2,000 a month. Well, I can't afford $2,000 a month, Mr. Landlord. Can we work something out? And the landlord's going to be, you know, sorry, I can't help you out. And oh, by the way, I've already rented out your place for $2,000 a month. But again, because going back to what we said about that roof over your head is the most important investment decision, that same tenant will now go out and try to find that apartment that would be somewhat comparable or maybe a mile or two away within their price range. Maybe you could jack the rents up like that in Texas. I'm not sure if you can do that in California. That's a very extreme example. <laughs> California has rent controls, but LA had its own, own serve issues uh, with some of the rental uh, rent moratoriums. Some of the publicly traded guys, you know, you guys know them out there. Xx residential, Equity Res, Equity Residential, Avalon Bay. Like these are guys that are feeling, you know, some of the issues on the West Coast. But you know, you make a great point. 
going back to COVID, kind of what started our fund idea is if you look what happened, everybody left the coast, California, San Francisco, which I'll be in there next week for a big reconference. Everybody left the coast and went to the Sun Belt. Well, what have we been seeing? People are still coming to the Sun Belt, but people are also going back to the coast again. You know, the, the San Francisco is seeing that resurgence again. Southern California, San Diego, parts of these countries that were, you know, have this mass migration when COVID started are actually seeing people go back to it. My belief is, look, there's only one New York City. There's only one San Francisco. You can't rebuild that anywhere else in the country. And so, therefore, at the end of the day, the rents are going to go back up again. It may not be up 10% a year. It may only be up 5%, 6%. But that's still growth. And that growth translates into growth of the dividend, which goes in your pocket, assuming everything else is equal. Well, I think earlier you kind of answered a question that many people have had worried that uh, these publicly traded companies, these institutional investors will just dump real estate. They'll just get out of all their holdings. Let's say single family homes, they, they don't want to manage them. They're going to dump them. But when you say that they're also locked into these low rates and they're getting great returns, there's no chance of that. Well, forget the institutional guys, again, at least from the publicly traded side. But when you look at sovereign wealth funds, when you look at big Wall Street firms, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and again, I mentioned sovereign wealth funds like the government of Singapore, the Canada Pension Plan, Blackstone, BlackRock, all of these massive private equity vehicles. There is so much money that's on the sidelines that's waiting to get developed into this industry because, again, they're seeing the same headlines that we're reading from Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and, again, Redmond and Zippo talking about how many millions of homes we need to develop to satisfy the renter and consumer demand that's out there. So, no, this is not going to be a situation where it's a build and dump. Yeah, if anything, I've heard more that the institutional investors are looking to expand and that the, the their ownership will increase dramatically. Right now, it's a pretty tiny percent ownership, I don't know, under 5% in, in single family. But you also need to look at their ownership window, you know, because you're talking about something for them that's taking a, it's a 10, 20 year type play. Where they're making money on this over the course of 10, 20 years, then they eventually cash out or they, they merge the company, they sell the company, whatever, and they've made 10x on the investment on behalf of their pension investors or whatever it is. It's not a wham, bam, let's make that quick home run day trade today. It's, wow, look at what this did 10 years from when we first had this idea until you know, reality and then proof of concept and completion. So they're really looking down you know, many lifetimes. Look, I'll give you an example. Senior housing. I don't know. I mean, again, it's a little bit out, probably outside the scope. But if you look at the world of senior housing, I don't know when the last time was if you were in a senior housing property, but the senior housing property that exists today looks nothing like the product that you and myself and our kids and our grandkids are going to live in down the road. And the reason being is that we're accustomed to many different things. Hardwood floors, LED lighting, a boatload of U.S ports, just to name a few different things. Well, a typical senior housing property is not really wired and accustomed for those things today. And so as a result, you're talking about an industry that's, in my opinion, going to be literally rebuilt from the ground up, looking at that consumer 25 to 50 years down the road. If you look at a company like Marriott Hotels or Hilton Hotels, and I know I'm scoring all these different ways, but it keeps focusing again on where that puck is going. Marriott and Hilton, two of our most famous hotel brands that are out there, have research and development departments set up 
where they're focused on the hotel room of tomorrow. When was the last time you were in a Marriott or a Hilton room? We know what it looks like. You walk in, there's the bathroom on the left, there's the bed, there's the desk, there's the TV and the credenza. It looks the same. It doesn't. It's like any McDonald's in Russia versus uh, Israel. It's the same McDonald's. It's the same Marriott room. But what is that going to look like 10, 25 years from now? Because they're trying to focus on what that consumer 25 years from today looks like. Same thing with the senior housing guys. What does that product look like 25 years from now? What does that single family rental product look like 10, 25 years from now? Well, we already know what that answer is. We've seen that because you see how that product has evolved over the course of the past decade or more. Fascinating. Do you believe that we'll see uh, a rise in cap rates in the multifamily sector with the rising interest rates? No question. No question. So then that would be a good buying opportunity. Not, not a good time to sell, but perhaps a good time to buy. I, again, I think it depends on your time frame because, you know, it, you can finagle a number here and there to make a cap rate work in your favor. Uh, and so I think at the end of the day, it's all about the actual operation of the product, of the property and the results. Look, these single-family rental guys, we've been talking about them a lot, have talked about how they've slowed down their acquisition pace. But if you go back and listen to their earnings season calls that just wrapped up last week, you know, they're talking about, well, things have come back into our favor now. We're starting to take a look at these things again. And I think it's the same thing for the developers where, you know, they may have hit the brakes a few months ago because things just got beyond, you know, ridiculous. And now when they realize that there might be some sunshine at the end of the rainbow there, maybe into 2020 where that happens, you know, they're like, well, Let's just wait a little bit. If we wait a little bit, we might be able to get it a little bit cheaper, a little bit more into our pockets. So I think it kind of depends on what type of investor it is, what type of property it is. You know, there's a lot of moving parts that are out there right now. Because frankly, it, it could all blow up tomorrow. If COVID comes back round two again, we could be right back where we were all over again. So it's really hard to focus on what that long term is. Where I'm going with this is, I don't know what your definition of long term investing is. I remember in my first college classes when I took my first finance class, my professor taught me long-term from where you sit right now in this classroom, the definition of long-term is the day you retire. Well, that's at that point, 50 plus years down the road. That's long-term. But if you go ask a 24-year-old college graduate today, what's your definition of long-term? You're going to get 10 different answers, two years, five years, 10 years. Maybe somebody will say 50 years. But it's really everybody's investment horizons have changed dramatically as you know, we kind of have this want it now uh, attitude where we see what happens with crypto or some of these things, some of these high flyers that are out there. And so again, I feel like it's with real estate, you could see it, you could touch it, you could feel it, you could smell it, you could paint it. You actually could control it. I feel like you can almost control the destiny of that property. And so if you're a long-term investor, think about how some of these properties in New York City or San Francisco have been around for hundreds of years, frankly. And yet they still maintain their value appreciation. Don't look at Empire State Building. It's a great example. How famous is the Empire State Building? And yet that property just continues to amass visitors, amass revenue. You know, it's it's there's no property like it in the country. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Any final thoughts for our listeners? There's nothing like owning the real estate. There's nothing like having achieving the American dream. For so many people, though they can't necessarily achieve that dream of owning a home. You can rent a home, but you could also buy a publicly traded company and earn dividend income 
by letting them run these properties for you. If we look at our fund, just an example, our constituents own hundreds of thousands of units across the country. And so as a result, we're looking, we know that our management teams are looking behalf, on behalf of all investors because they're aligned with shareholders. We know the one certain thing going forward is that residential demand is not going to wane. We don't know what a lot of other sectors on Wall Street is going to happen, but that one true inflation hedge, that one tried into portion of your portfolio should be reached real estate 5 to 15%. And obviously with what's going on in the market, that residential aspect of it will always remain important in your portfolio. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Well, that's great confirmation for us. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you so much for being here on The Real Wealth Show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can find out more about our single family rental fund at growdevelopments.com. And if you want to build your own rental portfolio, definitely stop by realwealth.com. You'll get a tremendous amount of resources and referrals to teams across the country who can help you build that portfolio. I'm Kathy Fetke. Thanks for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. We'll see you next time. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.